You might not understand, Susie, because her mouth is full of potato chips. <laughs> I was trying to swallow before we started. That's what she said. Right. Wait, that doesn't right. make sense, though. She would swallow after they started. Yeah. Hi-o. Hey. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Brain Candy Podcast. Wow, kicked it off with a BJ joke. That right. doesn't happen often. Why not? Why not? It is high time we started with a BJ joke. You know what I'm saying? About time. <laughs> uh, episode 143. Today, this is another episode that we recorded already, but mm-hmm. totally got ruined because of our uh, technical issues. Ruined. So we're doing it again. A lost episode. I have no idea what we talked about in this episode, so well, everything's fresh and new. Let me give you a hint, because this is the notes that I have left. Oh, great. This is going to be exciting. Romance. Okay. Pigeons. Okay. 365 proposals. Mm. Magic scandal. Okay. Lemonade stand. Okay. Overweight flyers. Mm. And golf. You have all this to look <laughs> forward to, guys. There but you anyways, go. That is a preview of the episode to come. It is funny because I try to take notes during the show so that I can remember what to put in the newsletter and like what to say when we promote it. Uh-huh. And sometimes the notes are just... Make like, no sense. What the hell is that? <laughs> like pigeons? I have no memory. I'm trying to remember what we were talking about pigeons about. But it's I probably... mean, this is not what we were talking about. But somebody once said, have you ever seen a baby pigeon? And my answer was no. No, me neither. Where the fuck are all the baby or pigeons? Or do they just not look like pigeons? Yeah, but they have to... Oh, you think they look like another bird when they're Yeah, babies? like I saw one and I didn't know it was a pigeon or something. Oh, and like it grows up to look different? Yeah. What is a baby? Like I've never seen That's a pigeon nest. That's my theory. Nest. A nest, right. Right? How the but they're fuck everywhere. do they get here? Where the goddamn hell do they live? <laughs> what if just... they all rented an apartment? <laughs> do they leave for work with little pigeon briefcases that just carry one message in it? Like the homing <laughs> come back. Oh, I know oh what you were telling God. me about. About the guy who, who your friend gave somebody a pigeon. Oh, no. Timmy gave there, me a pigeon. There you go. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yes. Sarah said, what is the most romantic thing anyone now has ever... Now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> I remember this whole conversation now. And I said, I didn't really know because, you know, nothing stuck out in my mind. And then I said, but Tim Beggy got me a pigeon for my 21st birthday. Her 20th birthday. Mm. And she required an explanation, which makes sense. <laughs> he bought me 20 presents all lined up. Mm-hmm. And most of them were stupid. <laughs> like he gave me a bumper sticker that said, meter maids eat their young. What the heck is that Like about? what was I supposed to do with that? And then Put it on your car? Right. Then I'll get more tickets. Oh my God. That's exactly right. Why did they even make that bumper sticker? Right. We should say meter maids are awesome. Yeah. And I love them. Love them. Don't take it in my car. <laughs> then in one of the boxes was a live pigeon, which is preferable to a dead one. Right. Thank you for that, Timmy. And I was telling Sarah how I, of course, let the pigeon go. Right. And I laughed because it was a homing pigeon, so it just flew back to where Timmy bought it. And how I'm sure that this guy who owned a company, you can look it up, it's called World of Pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe we, he should actually call it World of Pigeon because it's just the one and then it always comes back. <laughs> what if somebody was like, I'm going to need a flock of pigeons? And he's like, actually, we only have like one guy. 
<laughs> I give you a deal on one. <laughs> so I wonder where that pigeon is now. What's the life expectancy on those guys? That's such a good question. It could, like, if you said, I bet it's, let's take a guess. What do you think? I'm, Twenty years. I think it's seventeen. Oh. <laughs> I mean, not like I just play Price is Right rules. I feel like. If you said 90 years, I'd be like, oh, okay. Or if you said nine days, I would be, okay, okay. that makes sense. Life. It could be anything. Expectancy of a pigeon. We're going to find out today. Well, I'm not the... Oh, my gosh. How long? Six years in the wild. See, we're, but I thought we were both going to go, yeah, that makes sense. Pigeons long and long... That pigeon's long and gone. <laughs> Right? It's like a dog. Isn't that how long they live? Not really. No, they live. Oh, have you heard about the pigeons who were trained to shoot missiles during World War... I think it was World War Two. No, First World War? A little bit. So yeah. they were used... Well, in the First World War, pigeon lofts were set up behind trenches... And pigeons often had to pl- fly through enemy fire and poison gas to get messages home. And they played a vital role in inte- intelligence gathering. Uh-huh. And then in the Second World War, they were used to... There was like a study that was done. I, I can't remember who it was who did it. But they gave pigeons this screen and trained them to peck at a little dot. Mm-hmm. And by pecking at the dot, it would center the missile to on the target. So the pigeons were able to guide the missile and blow up the target. But then apparently like something happened and they canceled the... It was working and it was totally going to work. And then they abandoned this mission. Just because it sounded stupid. Probably. Because <laughs> it sounds ridiculous. You know what doesn't sound stupid? What? Stamps.com. No, it sounds smart. <laughs> Sarah's over there today boxing up, I should say, enveloping. Enveloping. All the WTF pins you guys have been just dying for. And we will be shipping them out today. They're using so cool. Stamps.com. Yeah. Here's why it's great. If you're like me and do not want to go to the post office, you don't want to leave the house, and you want to have the post office experience from your desk, this is perfect for you. You can print any postage for any letter, any package, anything you want. And it's easy. And if you sign up today by going to stamps.com and clicking on the microphone at the top of the homepage and typing in brain candy, you get a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. We use stamps.com for all of our shipping, and you can enjoy the same service with that special offer. It's convenient, easy, reliable, and free. Stamps.com. Brain candy. Okay. So, here's what's on my list. What's on your list? I'm going to skip to the, the magic scandal because that was the most fun to talk about. It's really exciting. I mean, exciting for me because I'm a weird fan of magic. I'm becoming more of a fan of magic. Are you becoming a fan of magic because you like... With the magic beef that's happening right now. What? Not like magic oh, beef, like yeah. beef that is magic. I'm talking about like the fight over magic. That's the part I don't like. I wish they could get along, all those magicians. But mm. what? here's the issue. Yes. There's a magician in who has a show in New York, mm-hmm. and he is supposedly has the most insanely great 
show anyone's ever seen. Other magicians are like, what? How do you do that? It's yeah. like a big mystery. What, will you look up his name for me? Yeah. It, I think it was Dave. I think Claudio, Dave, Dave. But I don't want to get too. it wrong. Um, and he did this show. And at the end of the show, there's this big finish that no one can figure out how he's done it. And as you might suspect, you're not allowed to have cameras or your phone out during the performance because that would compromise the integrity of the magic. Mm -hmm. So the guys in the back of the room that work the audio visual effects for the show, they were watching their monitor and saw a light. Oh, dang. It was coming from the phone of someone in the audience who is also a magician. And when they looked up in the crowd, there was no light. They could only see it through the monitor, which means it was like infrared mm. or some sort of different wavelength. And after the show, they went up to him and were like, we need to get that footage. And wasn't of- it another famous magician? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I right? said that. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. And you could see on the video that he hold, held up his phone to his chin, too. It was like you could see him getting it uh-huh. out. It wasn't like just a weird light. But when they looked through the phone, they couldn't find any footage because you know how people have those apps where it's like if you take a video, it'll store it in a secret space so people can't find it. Mm-hmm. You'd think the magician show would be aware of how to find them anyway. You know what I mean? They're yeah. goddamn magicians. Right. Where are you going to hide it? I don't know. In this magic hat? <laughs> Up my sleeve. Up my sleeve. Right. But so he left and he denies all charges. He can't, he doesn't know. Okay. Now I can't, what would I type in to find this guy's name? I think it's Dave DeClaudio. Dave? Magician. DeClaudio. Um, yeah, no. It's not coming up? Okay. I'll find it. Um, um, because I then a couple days ago saw an article that said, like on his Twitter, it said, yes, we did catch his act and what's the big deal. And he like put the link up and I think it's all fake. You were mentioning to me that it's like phony baloney and that it could be that they're just in cahoots with each other. So basically you think that the... Guy that might have been taping mm-hmm. was like, and this is a gag to get promotion. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. And it's not like mm-hmm. magician sneakery. We're the ones that the joke's on. Yeah. What's the movie that you love about magic? The Prestige. Yes. Best movie ever. It really is a good movie. It's so good. Not to be confused with Catch Me. If- no. <laughs> now you see me. No. Have you seen that movie? No. But why are you so judgy? I heard bad things. I heard... I- no, great oh. things. Oh. <laughs> just I mean, from you. If you just listen to me, you'll hear oh. great things. I haven't seen the second one, but the first one's great. Woody Harrelson. Oh, I love Woody Harrelson. Oh, I know. Okay. I did yeah. hear bad and things. And Morgan though. Freeman. Okay. And that really funny guy who talks super did fast. Did you see in it? zombie movies. Yes. Because everyone like said four it's times. terrible. Oh, no, I loved it. Maybe I'm thinking the one where Joe, um, Dan, uh, what the fuck, De Niro was a, a comedian. Oh, what is that? I think it was called Comedian. Oh. It's like the opposite of this. There are no magicians involved in that movie. <laughs> At any rate, The Prestige, yeah, oh, so which cool. is where there's like a competition yes. between magicians. And I mean, I can see how that would happen because there's 
we talked about like you can patent a device right um if uh, if you have a prop that you use in an act but if you patent something you have to explain how it works and that would give away a lot of tricks now, when you patent something and you have to explain how it works does all that information then become public yeah. okay so it's not just like the people in the patent office who get to no. see it no oh and so dang Patents run out also, so then after the patent expires, then anyone can use your exact method to do it. And anyway, you just don't want people knowing how your tricks are done. So they don't patent. So they they don't patent the device, and they can't patent, like, ideas. Right. And that's what intellectual property is sort of – it's complicated. Uh Yeah, they also can't patent – uh, WTF logos or <laughs> cover at WTF logos upside down. That's that true, Sarah. Anybody could just put on t-shirts. Or... That is a very good point. I'm just saying. I mean, you'd have to be a lowlife. You would. To do it. But yeah. you you can. You can. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just love it because, number one, I want to see this guy's show. His name is Derek Del... Gaudio. Okay. Derek Del Gaudio. Nothing like Dave Del... De Claudio. Which is what you said, which is not even all <laughs> close to that. Derek you Del- pulled a mom right there. <laughs> Derek Delgadio is the guy in it. What's his show called? <coughs> oh, <coughs> whoa. What's happening, <coughs> Richard? Magic. It's called In and of Itself. And I read that um, Penn from Penn and Teller yes. went to the show twice. He went the second time because he was trying to figure out certain things and he caught more the second time than the first time, but he said there's still some things he cannot figure wow. out. It's so he, fun. They're always able to, they, they know how to do everything. Penn and Teller, they have that show that, yeah, um, where you're supposed to try to stump them. They're very smart. They're so smart. Yeah. It feels like another, but then it's one of those things where I don't really want to know how they do it. Yeah, like I don't Once I was know. at the Magic Castle once, and we were sitting in the very front row, and the... I think you were with me. I might have been. You might have been. And we were sitting in the front row, and this guy was doing some sleight of hand magic, and it was just the very end of the night, and it was like the last show. It's probably like 1 o'clock in the morning. And it was one where it makes it look like two wedding rings are interlocked, Mm -hmm. and they're just floating on each other. And I could see a paper clip. Mm. that was holding the two things together. No. And it was so simple that it almost, I like didn't want to believe it. I'm like, that's it? It's just a fucking paper clip? Like, not, uh, no, sorry, not a paper clip. A stapler, a staple. It was even small. It's a staple. It was like an, a staple bent in a certain way was able oh. to hold that together and I could just see the little corner of it and it felt like the moment I found out Santa Claus wasn't real. Yeah. It was kind of like, oh. It's like you want to know. But I know. believed in you. You want to believe. <clears throat> you want to know, but you don't want to know. Right. Because then what's the fun? Yeah. But it does drive you nuts because it, your mind and your eyes play tricks on you. Uh-huh. And I hate that about well, it. Right. And there's such, it all happens like in that space in between that we don't really pay attention to. Mm-hmm. We're just all looking at the details. And that's kind of where magicians live is in that like in between world where they can influence our behavior in ways we don't know. Like, I don't know. The other day we were, we were doing something and, and having a discussion about a topic that was not even related to this, but you mentioned 
a word that had just been, I just saw on your computer screen or like as Mm -hmm. you were searching for something on the computer, you used a metaphor or something that included the image that you had just been looking at. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know if you realized what you did there. And I was like, oh, you just said that because you were just primed with the image that you just saw on there. Mm -hmm. And it's like, once you realize that you are being primed for things or that you say a word because you were thinking about that earlier or, you know, it's makes, you can pretty much trace every coincidence and all those kind of things back to even thing. I've read some books about the way that stores are laid out to make you buy things. Yes. And they they are targets, all sorts of things there. They even pump, uh, smells. Yep into the store. I mean, anyone that's walked goddamn 10 feet away from an Abercrombie can <laughs> smell the cologne. They, I've seen them spraying it out the door. Yeah. But, you know, it makes sense because uh, it all plays a role. In California, I think it's in California or in warmer, well, probably anywhere where it's warmer, they will crank the air conditioning up when winter clothes come out to try to make you want to buy more sweaters. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. There was Even also, the way this is like, you know, all, you know, what is an aside on here? Um, but I guess it's not an aside when we're discussing how stores are laid out. But there was a study that was done on women's shopping habits. And there is something called, in, I don't know what this would be, like the psychology of, of people's behaviors in stores. There's an, a phenomenon called the butt bump phenomenon. Yeah. Where if women's rear ends touch in a store, most of them will walk, like a, a, a shocking percentage, like 95% will leave the store within five minutes without even coming what they're, it's some kind of violation of, so st- stores design aisles, especially in women's departments to be wide enough to where two of them can turn around without touching butts. Yeah. And it's, they gave it a name, the butt bump phenomenon. It makes sense. It's just so weird to me. So some, I was in, a, I was in a Ross a little while ago, and I bumped into this lady, and we definitely butt bumped. And I was like, oh, I gotta watch her to make to see if she leaves. Did she? No, we both. She stayed. probably liked it. Maybe I, I did. <laughs> I mean, maybe yours is like the miracle butt. The mirror that makes you want to spend more. <laughs> But even like the way that they lay the store out in terms of like colors and yeah. signs and JC Penny almost went out of business because they decided they weren't going to do sales anymore. They were going to do just mark the item at the lowest point uh-uh, doesn't do work. where they would make a profit, mm-hmm. but there was no haggling or clearance or sales. It was just, this is the, the price. Mm-hmm. And people hate it because right. they like to think they get a bargain. Right. Well, even if you, I was in... CVS just yesterday and they had a sale on sun, the spray sunscreen and I was thinking about it because I was thinking about your kid when he came over to my pool and I had that horrible kind that Susie had to rub on his face and you'd think I, we were torturing him and uh, so I was interested in getting a bottle but they made they had these big signs everywhere 859, 859, 859 like it was such a big deal and they didn't anywhere show the actual like what the regular cost of it was it yeah. all just said on sale 8.99 then i was at another cvs in another town and the sunscreen wasn't on sale and it was 8.99 no all those big signs for a 40 cent difference and to me i was like 
oh, I should buy three. When I first saw that sign, and then I thought, no, Sarah, you don't need sunscreen right You know what is a good deal? What? Tell me. Smart move. It's a smart deal. (laughs) Sarah. Smart Move is a great company if you own a property and you need to find tenants, but you don't know how to find good ones that aren't going to screw you over. Um, evicting a tenant can cost a ton of dough. Who, who needs that? You don't want a tenant that has a criminal hit. No. And one in five of them do. Gross. Crazy. And um, 20% of rental applicants had at least one prior conviction. How would you know any of this, though? Let me tell you about Smart Move and find out what you don't know about your rental applicants and how you can save 25% off your next tenant screening. Basically, if you're showing a tenant your property, you can both be on your phone. The tenant puts their info into something that's private and secure. You get a report back showing their business, and then you can decide whether they're the right tenant for you. If you own a rental property or know someone who does, try Smart Move so you don't find out the hard way that a prospective tenant is an eviction risk. Go to tenantscreening.com, enter code BRAINCANDY, and get 25% off your next screening. Don't be in the dark about your applicant's rental history. Know your tenants with Smart Move tenant checks. Go to tenantscreening.com, enter my code BRAINCANDY, and get started. With Smart Move, you'll get great reports, great convenience, and great tenants. That sounds great. Great, great, great. <laughs> great, great, great. Um, okay. Do you want to talk about the lemonade stand? Oh, yeah. So I was flipping through uh, some... Like, oh, I say flipping through like I'm actually reading a newspaper. No. It's on my phone, for Christ's <laughs> sake. Flipping through. Um, I guess it's sort of flipping through, thumbing through the, the yeah, old phone. Yeah, um, And a story came up about a little girl in England who was fined 150 pounds, so like 200 bucks, for operating a an illegal lemonade stand. Illegal. Like, illegal. I love it. Right. And I, so I read the article, and apparently this is something that happens all the time in the United States. <laughs> Come on. Does that bother you? When in Mayberry? Who's doing this? What's Mayberry? Oh, damn. Sarah. What? What? I don't know what that means. The reference what? is lost. What's Mayberry? <laughs> the town in which Andy Griffith lived. <laughs> that guy? That guy. Okay. <laughs> but it's more like a cultural reference about right. any rural, like you know, Mayberry. old-timey. Oh, I feel like I have heard that before. I am sick. Why are you sick? Because it's I bet a- if we pulled the brainiacs, that now we have to pull the brainiacs. <laughs> I bet they would both. They would all be like, "What's Mayberry?" So no now it's Mayberry. Even if they mark. didn't watch it, they know the reference. Oh my god! I'm I. It, it, wow! I'm out of the loop. How in the hell are we as close in age as we are, and yet not? I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, it just seems like what cops have that kind of time is what I'm saying. Right. You know what I mean? And that's one of those things that you always say the, the, oh my God, I always get this wrong. 
Letter of the law versus spirit of the law. Right. Letter what of the, the law versus spirit of the law. If this, the spirit of that law is not to shut down my five-year-old's lemonades. And she was all crying, and she's like, Daddy, what did I do? But she's like British, so it's extra cute. Daddy, what did I do? Yeah. Adorable. It is. She's like Cockney. And I really hate right. people like that. Me too. Not the girl, the police. Or right. Whoever gave her the citation. Probably a meter maid. Ugh. <laughs> Who eat their young. <laughs> Um, okay. Have you ever had a lemonade stand when you I were did. Little? Did you? Did, you did. I did. I didn't. You'd think I would. It totally seems like you would. Right. Or like beat, like bracelet, French shirts. Bra- oh, no. You know what I did, actually? It wasn't this and I wasn't little. I was more entrepreneurial and was I was cared about making, I cared about making the money. I went to a, <laughs> a gift show with my aunt who used to sell she like was a wholesaler who sold things at gift shows and one of the booths next to ours was giving out these delicious lollipops like the really big fancy kinds that are huge you know the ones that are all the tie-dye colors and every one is a different flavor and they're all really cool flavors and so they were giving those out to people who came by their um booth and at the end of the gift show they had probably 400 lollipops left and they're like, do you want some? And I was like, yes. And they gave me the whole bag. And so I sold them at my school for a dollar a piece. No, you And made did a not. shit ton of money until the school shut me down. I sold them. And then they said, you can't sell on school property. So then I went right outside school property. And then they wouldn't let me sell it there. And I got mad at them because they allowed the guy to pass out Bibles, but they didn't allow me to pass out, lo- well, so lollipops. <laughs> I bet if you were selling Bibles, they wouldn't have. Yeah, that's probably true. That's so great. Yeah, so that's a great. I was always looking to make money in in like junior high, you know, high school age. I will say, despite the fact that I had a lemonade stand, that I have, I did a tweet one time about how I think kids overestimate the degree to which adults want lemonade. (laughs) Right, like. I don't ever drink lemonade in real life. No, only at I'll stands. buy it from your shitty stand, but like, why don't you have, I don't know, soda or like stuff people actually drink in real life? Right. Maybe it a all started as like low overhead. Right. Like, cause of Kool-Aid, you just mix it up. Yeah. I think maybe at one point it was just that. Well. Or do you remember con- juice? I, when I was little, I only drank juice from concentrate. My yes. dad and mom used to get the cans that would just dump out and then and the we'd mix spoon. them with a wooden spoon in yeah. one of those big Tupperware plastic, probably pictures. filled with BPA p- p- pictures. We had that too. That we let bake in the sun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why we're so screwed up. Yeah. Probably can't have kids because of that lemonade. <laughs> Don't joke about that. I shouldn't. I know. It's terrible. Oh, but speaking of which, this is like perfect segue, not okay. even off topic at all now. I just read a study that was done by, uh, I think, the University of Jerusalem okay. on, I think, it, a, a huge number. I want to say like 40,000 plus, a study of ma- the sperm count of males in westernized countries. Yeah. It's down 50% in the last 40 years. Whoa. That's terrifying. It says that by 2060... 80% of men will be infertile if it's going at these rates. It's like the Handmaid's Tale. Kinda. That's what I think. The, yeah. I, I, I tweeted out and I was like, this is handmade, some Handmaid's Tale shit. Well. Holy fuck. What if that is a book that... No. I'm freaking out, man. Because when I read that, it is cause for alarm. That is terrible. 
50% drop in 40 years. That's sick. Well, we do have an overpopulation problem. Yeah, but like, I would just like... Uh, just the one? One. <laughs> just give me a kid. I just need <laughs> one sperm to work. Oh my God. I read a tweet thread recently, changing the subject, mm-hmm. that just got my wheels turning and I wanted to talk to you guys about it. It was of a woman, I believe it was a woman, but mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure, but I think it was a woman who was talking about what it's like to fly as an obese or overweight mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the thread was quite long and it was describing sort of the process of getting ready, the anxiety, mm-hmm. and then the logistical concerns, for example, she brings her own belt extenders so she doesn't have to ask for one. And she oftentimes will get a first class ticket because then she doesn't have to buy two coach tickets, which cost more Mm -hmm. if you buy two of them. Mm -hmm. And um, just how embarrassing and humiliating it is to have your body sort of spilling over into somebody else's space. Yeah. And I thought it was very interesting and thought-provoking. It didn't have anything in there about, like, empathy for the person whose seat you're spilling onto. Mm -hmm. Because that's a concern on the other side where, you know, if somebody's sort of invading your area that you paid for, that's disconcerting as well. Right. But there's not shame involved in that. There's just anger. And this was more of a... About the shame and frustration of that process. I wondered what your thoughts are. Well, I can only imagine. I mean, I feel almost like this is a feeling that would be felt in not just in almost every scenario, not just on an airline. Well, they make it particularly right. hellish. Of course. I mean, it's already a hellish experience for a normal person, like a person of average size. Yeah. A person of above average size would be whether you're tall or right. overweight or whatever. Absolutely. And anyway, I think about how uncomfortable I am on that plane and I can only imagine how uncomfortable it would be. My husband was on the plane just last week or so and he was sitting in a emergency exit seat but had an aisle row and both people in the seats next to him, the center and the window were both very like overweight and he said he felt so bad for the guy in the middle because the guy you can tell he didn't want to take up all of Landon's armrest yeah. but he physically couldn't not not yeah and that would just be a very the whole think about you know it's just such a sad cycle i think Mm-hmm. You know, where you get into this negative headspace where you tell yourself all these horrible things. This person's probably thinking this about me. This person's probably thinking this about me. And Well, I don't think it's just that they're thinking it. I think a lot of times people verbally they say do. terrible things. They do. There was a, a one woman who's a plus-size model who saw the guy sitting next to her texting rude things about her. And she videotaped it. And then she called him out on it. No. And she's like, hey, buddy, I see what you're sending over there. Like, I just want to talk to you about, like, how that makes me feel. And he kept saying, like, kind of attacking her at first. She's like, I just want you to know that, like, 
I work out five times a week. I blah, 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 blah. Like, I'm a plus. I'm a model. People paid me to be in magazines and things like this. Like, I kind of put him in his place, but he didn't sound like he was at all sympathetic or, yeah. you know, I think he's probably just more embarrassed. And that went viral, so you can probably find it. Oh, my God. You can definitely find it. We'll, we'll post that video. In, I'll uh, put um, a lot of these things in the newsletter. You can sign up at the braincandypodcast.com. We have a little space where you can put your email in. Um, if any of you folks are not perfect seers, what's mm. the politically correct way to say that? People without perfect vision? Uh Yes. You're big on that. Right. Oh, yeah. Individuals <laughs> whose eyesight is not... <laughs> right. Not calling them... Yeah. The- if you wear contacts, this Hubble is a great company and something you should try. And basically, you can get a fresh pair of lenses every single day for less. 60 contacts for 30 bucks. Do the math. It's $1 a day. This is half the price of the other brands. Go to HubbleContacts.com and get your first two weeks for free. You get quality daily lenses. Lenses. We should call them that. Yeah, lenses. That's like what British people would call them. Get quality lenses for get half lenses. the price of the other guys. And I ch- I did it in five minutes. Basically, if you oh, have nice. your prescription and you know the name of your doctor, you just type it in. And there's a list of your of the doctors. You just find yours. It takes seriously five minutes, and then they send them to your door. Easy on the eyes and easy on the wallet. Go to hubblecontacts.com. Get your first two weeks for free. That's fifteen pairs. Okay. So, um, what else did I want to talk to you about? I do have an interview that I wanted to share with the audience. Mm. Of I love your interviews. Me too. You're so good. You know who I I can't stop thinking about? Who? Your lady with the motorcycle. Really? I love her. Mm-hmm. I want to be her. She lives in And my in mom loves LA. her. Oh, that's cool. I'm like, Mom, you should meet this woman. My mom's like, yeah, motorcycles are so cool. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Start your life after menopause. Get it. It's like, yeah. This, this guy's on. really cool, too. His name is Danny Goldberg, and he, he yeah. wrote a book called In Search of the Lost Chord. He's a guy that... Grew up in the hippie time. Mm-hmm. And this book is kind of providing all the context for that period of time in the world and what was going on politically and culturally and musically. Danny Goldberg worked in the mu- music industry for years and years and years. So I love that about mm-hmm. the book because he was showing how the music was a reflection of a lot of angst, but hope, a lot of hopefulness about like we as a community, can make things better. Yes. And, like, at a time like this, politically, I thought it was a great book to read because I don't know about you, but no matter what side of the spectrum you fall on, I think people are feeling like this is just ugly. Mm -hmm. Things aren't getting better Mm -hmm. in any way. Mm -hmm. And everyone hates each other. And I think we have to use our voice now more than ever. Yeah, and that's what this book shows is that these people got together and had a philosophy, a point of view that was hopeful and peaceful and love-based, mm-hmm. but not frou-frou-frou. It was action-based as well. Yes. Which is so cool. And a really important thing that messages have to be in order to 
have an impact. And yeah. Get and so excited. I wanted to talk to him and be like, you know, what was it like in that moment? And do you think there's hope now? Right. What can we do now? Yeah. How does this apply or is this just ancient history? Mm. So I think it's a really interesting book in search of the lost cord. And I think it's an interesting interview and I hope you guys agree. He's a fascinating guy, very smart. He knows all kinds of people that were uh, important during that time. And I think you'll enjoy hearing from him. Anything you want to add before he comes on? Oh, just that I love that time of music. You're telling me. I mean, I feel like you really are that I time love of it. music. Mm-hmm. It yeah. is great. I never get sick of it. It's soul satisfying. Like When you hear it, you're like... Yeah, man. Mm-hmm. I can get down with this. Yeah. Beatles, Beach Past Boys. The joint. <laughs> <laughs> and that too, for many people. And he talks about that too. It's like, yeah. let's not pretend like this was just all, there was a lot of fun going on. This was pre-AIDS, HIV. Right. Everyone, free love, man. Whoa. Um, but please, in the meantime, subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review. And please tell a friend. Tweet to us. We love it. But I hope you enjoy our interview with Danny Goldberg. All right. So, fine, sir. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the Brain Candy Podcast. I'm very excited for my listeners to read your book, In the Search of the Lost Cord. Everyone should buy it. Um, I really enjoyed your book, and I have a lot of questions for you, so settle in. Here's what I want to know, sir. I feel like you're a guy, you've been around, you've done so much, and why did you want to tell this story? Well, I've always had kind of an obsession with the 60s. I graduated from high school in 67. I spent most of my adult life in the rock and roll business, which is a business and culture that was so much, so much of which was created in the late 60s. And... um I uh, I realized kind of near the end of 2015 that these 50th anniversaries were all coming up. And if I was ever going to put in my two cents about <laughs> what the 60s meant to me, this was the time. And I felt that a lot of the what passes for history of the 60s in books, movies, uh, CNN documentaries and so forth has been unbalanced, that it's focused disproportionately on the protest. Hmm. And and minimized sort of the spiritual aspects of it. Yeah. Uh, and I recognized that protest was part of it. I was against the war. I went to anti-war marches, and I'm very grateful I wasn't drafted, and I was opposed to it. But I uh, there was a lot else going on that created the feeling that we call the '60s, hmm. and I and I thought that maybe I could uh, contextualize these things with a different balance than I had seen before. And uh, that and the fact that I just was kind of feeling like I ought to write another book so I wouldn't hate myself uh, (laughs) added up to writing it. And then I had a very quick deadline once I decided to do it in order to get it out for the 50th anniversary of the so-called Summer of Love. Well, I think that you did a really fantastic job of providing that context because as someone who didn't grow up in the 60s, like you said, I'm at the mercy of what is uh, provided to me in content. And uh, even little things that you mentioned, like how the name of uh, Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, I never got the pun. I never knew that it was called that based on these other ins that were going on. And I was so appreciative of this exhaustive effort you appeared to have taken to provide every aspect. But I'm wondering as a writer... 
how the heck you tackled all these components and then compiled it so neatly. That seems very challenging. Well, it was a subject that I was familiar with. Yeah. So I knew what I was looking for. Uh, and, um, and the internet is amazing. You know, not everything about the digital age pleases me, especially <laughs> as someone who made their living in the record business, yeah. but, uh, uh, it would have taken another year if, if I had to go physically to libraries and find uh, this stuff. I, I read about 60 or 70 books, uh, some of them on the Kindle, some of them I had to order hard copy, but uh, a lot was available online. There are a lot of uh, videos and things like that. But the key for, for this, I knew what I was looking for. I didn't remember the details, but I had a sense of it. And uh, you know, then I interviewed about 30 people to just get some firsthand uh, corrections and, and, and impressions. But it, the passion for the subject uh, really helped. And, uh, you know, I was just sort of in a trance for a lot of last year. And, and uh, thank you. I'm glad you liked it. But I just, uh, I just kind of, I knew, I knew that I wanted to try to at least give a mosaic that replicated approximately what my perceptions uh, of a word. No two people have the same opinion about the 60s. Uh, <laughs> first of all, so many of us were high a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then there's a lot of self-serving, uh, self-promoting memories. Uh, and it's 50 years and the passage of time blurs memory. But but I, I'm happy with, with the approximation I came up with is the best I could do. When you were reading those other books and interviewing other people for your book, was there something that stands out that surprised you that you learned? You know, the thing that stood out for me in the interviews was how positive people were, because there's no question that a lot of darkness happened around the 60s. Uh, first of all, the war in Vietnam. I mean, 56,000 Americans killed millions of Asians. Uh, race relations were a combustible moment. The worst urban riots since the 60s. So many of our heroes were murdered. Dr. King, Robert Kennedy, uh, among them, uh, a lot of the musicians died very, very young, some self-inflicted. Right. Um, the, the, uh, the drug scene turned sour very quickly. Uh, you know, an idealistic psychedelic culture that was really about spiritual and inner exploration quickly became uh, just getting high and drug dealers took over and heroin and speed took over. Uh, uh, Madison Avenue and Hollywood uh, co-opted the symbols as quickly as we could create them and it became <laughs> kind of a cartoon. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of what happened in the 70s, 80s and 90s culture was to kind of make fun of the 60s. And, uh, you know, some of us would be accused of being stuck in the 60s or claiming we're not stuck in the 60s. <laughs> but, but, um, but what I found from people that I talked to was that behind all that, uh, a remarkable array of people, while acknowledging the darkness, uh, could access this sweet feeling mm -hmm. that still stayed with them. Uh, you know, the, the Greeks had many words for love, one of which is agape, which means universal love, to distinguish it from interpersonal love. And I found uh, myself quite touched by how easily so many people who were active at that period still could connect with that despite everything that's happened since then. Yeah, I was, um, I was inspired by that. I, I, my PhD is in religious studies. And so I was really struck by the, 
the the focus that you put on the spiritual aspect and that it isn't just the slothful stoners and the violence or whatever deadbeats that there was something really deeper than that that maybe gets lost in time through the media portrayal so do you feel in a way that you're doing a service to the memory of 67 at least well i did my best shot at 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 rendering um uh, it's a definitely, I see it through rose colored glasses. Yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, my adult life was inspired by it. I feel, um, you know, uh, did a lot of elements of it, uh, did more good than bad. And, uh, other people, uh, still being intellectually honest could come up with a different version of it. But, uh, yeah, I wanted to document, uh, a particular version of it. And I found that a lot of the responses to the book have been from people of my generation who appreciate having that version of it out there. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I mean, you talk at at length about the Beatles. Obviously, they're such an important figure over the last 50 years. And I'm wondering what, what you imagine it would be, would have been like for them at that time. Do you think they had a sense for culturally what they were doing? Well, I think that I think I think that by 1967 they did have a sense of uh-huh. that. Uh, I'm sure at the beginning they were just trying to make it and trying to play music, yeah. and it all happened very quickly for them. Here in America, uh, the Beatles emerged in January of 1964 when they were on the Ed Sullivan Show, which at the time was like the biggest TV show when there were only three channels. Right. Not only was there no YouTube, there was no cable. So. <laughs> it, 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 they, they, they reached a vast audience instantly and they became very, very famous very quickly. But by 67, they were, they were three years into that and they, they were young people. They were in their 20s and they were absorbing all these other influences that other people in their 20s were absorbing. Psychedelics, yeah. war protests. Uh, they were able to travel around the world. Everybody wanted to meet them. Uh, both uh, both uh, Paul McCartney and George Harrison visited Haight-Ashbury and uh, they all became interested in Eastern religion, uh, and that became public in '67. First, when they met the Maharishi, yeah, uh, which, I love that which, story. Inter- which introduced the word meditation to most of the Western world. Before that, it was only people like yourself who were getting PhDs in religious studies who even knew that word, unless <laughs> they were in a monastery or a convent. And suddenly, it was on the front page of tabloids. And 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 to, and part of rock and roll some, somehow. Uh, so so on the cover of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which comes out in '67, uh, and was considered one of the most uh, important records of all time, and some people rank it number one. It was certainly number one that year by a wide margin, and everywhere in the Western world. Um, it wasn't just the Beatles. Their early album covers were the four of them, and you know what was making them look the coolest, whether it's showing a new length of hair or a cool shirt or <laughs> a camera angle that made them look, you know, like rock stars. Um, Sergeant Peppers, there are sort of 
these statues of them amidst wax figures of 50 or 60 other people, uh, including movie stars like Marilyn Monroe, mystics like Paramatta Yogananda, uh, painters, philosophers. They were placing themselves into this counterculture. Uh, they were saying, we're part of this bigger thing. It, that's what the album cover says. I don't think there's any other interpretation one could get. Why would they have done that? Uh, and, hmm. and, 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 and to me, that really showed that they did have a sense of, number one, their limits. They were, they were artists that were part of something bigger, and they were placing themselves in that aspect of it. So they were explicitly identifying with, with, with this uh, counterculture uh, through the artwork of it. And then the record itself... Obviously, different people hear songs and process them in different ways. It's an impressionistic art form. I, I'm not going to try to interpret the Beatles lyrics, but, <laughs> uh, you know, there are people, uh, critics far more erudite than me that, that will keep doing that. But I don't think there's any question that musically it was it was uh, uh, part of, it was it was addressing the psychedelic rock that had come out of the West Coast and, and, and kind of merging their pop genius with that aesthetic. Right. I I really enjoyed hearing the story about the Maharishi and how they kind of stayed for a while and were enjoying learning and all of that. And then there was some maybe discretion by the Maharishi and John Lennon was like, peace out. I'm, this is not for me. Well, what I like about the Beatles, and again, they're not religious figures. They're artists. They're flawed. Yeah. Uh, they have all sorts, you know, they never pretended to be preachers or rabbis or saints, but they they were spiritual seekers, yeah. but they were seekers who continued to maintain their rational mind and ask questions. <laughs> right. And to me, that's the aspiration. I never wanted to be in a cult or just mindlessly follow things based on belief. And at the same time, I didn't want to be limited by materialism. And I thought their response to Eastern religion, uh, particularly George Harrison's, but also Lenin's, uh, is a pretty good balance of you can still be yourself, still ask questions, still maintain your ethics, maintain your skepticism, and still honor the unknown and be interested in embracing and understanding the unknown more. And, and, and I think they did that in a way that touched millions of people who didn't feel any connection to the religion that they were brought up in for whatever reason. Uh, and they also touched millions of people who were kind of brought up as materialists and that the whole goal of life was to get a certain kind of college degree or make a certain amount of money and, and, and who were yearning for another way of defining who they were as a, as a soul. And it's, it's amazing thing about the sixties was that it was this rock band was part of a <laughs> pop culture that was dealing with issues that previously were, the, were limited to uh, philosophers and, uh, religious leaders. Right. And like you said, everybody that experienced it has a different story and a different memory of it. I, I interviewed Mike Love from the Beach Boys, and he's still super into the transcendental meditation and that whole scene. Um, although you wouldn't guess it from his, I don't know, sort of persona on stage, but everybody takes what they find value in from the time, it seems. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, like a Rorschach ink blot, no two people see exactly the same thing. Right. But but I, I I tried to portray what I saw, and I think I think there were quite a few people who were seeing the picture I was seeing, and there were millions who were seeing another picture, and they right. were concerned. You know, there was at the same time the Reverend Billy Graham is 
at the peak of his popularity in the evangelical movement. <laughs> William F. Buckley has created firing line to bring kind of intellectual conservative Catholicism to the masses. It's a big world with a lot of different ideas, and that was true in, in the 60s, too. But there was yeah. this piece of what we call the counterculture that I think made a pretty big noise and reverberated in ways that still matter today. And that's what I was obsessed with when I was 16 and 17. And I try to share that my journey to find out what these things were that I was inspired by, but I wasn't actually a part of yet. Yeah. Because I wasn't old enough or cool enough to be there with <laughs> Muhammad Ali when he refused the draft or be there with the Beatles when they did Sergeant Peppers. But I was definitely old enough to, to be inspired by it. All right. So now here we are 50 years later, you write in the epilogue about why this is still relevant. I mean, in the age of Trump, what can we take away from that spirit of agape and apply today, hopefully, maybe? <laughs> well, my, my, my kids asked me a lot about this, too. They're in their 20s and did not vote for Trump. Uh, <laughs> and neither, neither did I. Um, I think there's a few things that are relevant. Um, uh, one is um, it's important to understand that there was that this optimism and happiness and the sort of the colors, the bright colors of the 60s, all took place amidst a lot of darkness. It's not like people today are the first people to ever deal with a government that scares them mm. and who they have moral questions about. Mm. Uh, the war in Vietnam was, was an extraordinarily big deal. Uh, 25 million young men were subject to the military draft. 56,000 Americans uh, died in the Vietnam War. Uh, nothing like that has happened since then. I mean, uh, in the in the uh, Gulf Wars combined, it's maybe one tenth that amount. Not that any death is unimportant, but just it's important to understand the scale. Not to mention millions uh, of of Asians. Uh, the FBI at that time, the hostility of 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 the FBI to the counterculture was much worse than it is today. They had these programs to infiltrate every anti-war group, and they. Uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover hated Martin Luther King. How could someone hate Martin Luther King? I can understand. <laughs> so I can understand somebody, you know, uh, not liking uh, Tim Leary because they thought LSD was bad for young people. I happen to have liked Tim Leary, but I don't think he was perfect. But Dr. King is the closest thing to me we've had to an American saint mm. uh, in my lifetime. And um, uh, you know, so the 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 uh, and then of course there were the assassinations in '68. The two the two greatest leaders that could have bridged the gap between the people that were disappointed in authority and had felt betrayed by it and the people who knew how to operate the machine, Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King, were both, both murdered. Uh, young men uh, who, could have, who could have helped uh, as leaders in this country for decades after that. Um, and uh, so, so I, I think that, that what you can take from the people that stayed optimistic uh, is that they didn't, it wasn't easy for them. It wasn't easy for Dr. King. He was attacked by the left, by the right. Um, so number one to understand, this is not the first dark time and we should take inspiration from people who were able to shine light in dark times. Number two, we should learn from some of the mistakes of the activists in the sixties also. Uh, and the, the one mistake that Haunts me is the amount of infighting, the tribalism, kind of this narcissism of small differences, where where people that were against the war bitterly criticized other people 
people that were against the war because they weren't against the war in exactly the same way they were. Same thing happened in the black community between different groups. And we see it today where uh, just even today, as we're taping this, it's one day after the election in Georgia where a Republican beat a Democrat. And there's already finger pointing, uh, yes. uh, you know, uh, between the Bernie Sanders yeah. fans and Hillary Clinton fans. Now, I happen to have voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary and for Hillary in the general. I have very good friends who are close to Clinton and who are close to Bernie. But it's unbelievable. They don't talk to each other a lot. They they uh, call each other's names. That's a luxury we can't afford. Right. Uh, Tom Hayden was one of the anti-war leaders I admired the most. He was the president of SDS. He wrote something called the Port Huron Statement, which was this early 60s brilliant critique of the moral failings of modern capitalism. And he, he, only, he died about a year ago after an extraordinarily important career as a state legislator, a writer, and a thought leader. And uh, he spoke shortly before he died, looking back on 50 years from certain aspects of the anti-war movement, and said that in those days, the young anti-war people called themselves the new left, mm. differentiated from the old left of the 30s. And he said, we de were determined not to replicate the bitter infighting between different factors on the left. He said, and we, we failed. We did replicate that. And, and that was uh, one of his biggest regrets. And I just plead with young people today, don't do it again. There has to be a way of disagreeing with each other and having ethical and spirited arguments without dehumanizing each other to the point that we can't work together. That's what the other side wants. If assuming that the intelligence agencies are right, and Russia did leaked the DNC emails to influence the American election. How did they do it? Mm -hmm. They did it by curating from zillions of emails, several dozen designed to irritate Bernie Sanders voters. That was the whole deal right. was to show that there were people in the DNC that were being mean to Bernie and were favoring Hillary Clinton. They know that when we're divided, they win. We have to know it so that we don't fall for it again. Yes, I was just reading Joanne Reed on Twitter was talking about that, how on the liberal side, all this sort of infighting is causing self-sabotage, while the right, even when they disagree, are united, and it's screwing the left. Yeah, I mean, look, the right, their philosophy is authoritarian. Right. So <laughs> it's inherent in their belief system is to respect whoever has the most money, you do what they want, whoever has the most power, you do what they want. So it's a little easier to unite the right, but we just can't fall for it again. That's been the downfall to me of the left 50 years ago in some respects. And uh, so I think there are things to learn to do, which is to tune into love, to not be daunted by the darkness, to look at how Dr. King's, if, you know, if you, if, you, if you ignore anything else from the 60s, I would just urge people go online and listen to some of Dr. King's speeches from 1967 and early 68 before he died. That last year of his life, had a level of depth, radicalism, and spiritual life that even dwarfs what he did earlier in the 60s at the March on Washington. Um, is there anything that you wish people would ask you that they don't? <laughs> I've been pretty excited by how many people like you read the book, and I love talking about it. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, happy with this uh, conversation, <laughs> that's for sure. Good, because I always think if I wrote a book, maybe I'd think, well, why isn't anyone asking me about this thing that I thought was really important? But Well, maybe I'll feel that way in a few months. Right now, I'm so <laughs> excited that I finished it, 
and then it came out and some people like it. Uh, I, I'm just enjoying the conversations that it spawns and what it brings about in people. Yeah, I am too. And I hope people read it and feel what you're describing and can apply it today. Um, we ask everybody one last question, which is, uh, what do you keep in the trunk of your car? You know, <laughs> I live in Manhattan. Oh, do you have and, a car? Uh, so I have a car, which okay. I only use occasionally to go to the country, and there is nothing in the trunk. What? So it's, it's kind of a Zen Buddhist <laughs> trunk. That's funny, because we try to think of it as being symbolic, so maybe that's the symbolism there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. People are going to love your book. Thank you for talking thank to me. Thank you for having me. It means a lot to me. Congratulations. Thank you, Danny. Bye. Bye. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.